Welcome to the At A Total Loss podcast, where lost moms candidly talk about stillbirth, baby loss, grief, survival, and all things in between. I'm Catherine. My first child, Brody, died at full term and was stillborn in January of 2022. I literally thought the sadness was going to kill me. And while trying to survive, I reached out to lost moms to connect with others who knew how I felt. It was these conversations that saved me, and to this day, they still do. We discuss our babies, life with grief. We even laugh, a lot actually. It is my hope that hearing our stories will help you realize that you are not alone in any of this, and maybe even serve as a guide to finding light in the dark. So get comfortable and grab some tissues as we discuss this crazy life after baby death that has left us all at a total loss. All right, hey guys, so... Before I bring on Dr. Collins, I, I kind of want to do a little disclaimer here. Um, what you're about to hear is the professional and personal opinions of an OB who practiced and has researched for decades. You are going to hear me personally reacting to a lot of what he says. Throughout the podcast, he does share photos with me by sending them to my phone as we chat. Now, if you'd like to see these images, the version of the podcast with the images is on my YouTube channel, The Catherine Lazar, so you can go there and watch it if you'd like to. If you do that, just a heads up, they are a little bit graphic. The ones that are not up are the ones I just felt that I should not share with you guys. Just they were way too much, even for me. Now, for me personally, after Brody was born, I sent his placenta pathology out, and Dr. Harvey Kleiman from Yale said that, yes, Brody had a very small placenta, second percentile. However, that's not what killed him. It was a cord compression. I took that information to an MFM who said that all stillborns have, I hate that term, but all babies who are stillborn she used it improperly, but anyway, um, had a cord compression that is essentially what ends up ending their life. That seems to be inaccurate because not everybody I've spoken to shows cord compression on their placental analysis. Now, there was also a question on if a clot killed him. In about three seconds during the podcast, you'll hear Dr. Collins say, no, that a clot comes after the compression. I mean, he just cleared up two years of me wondering. You're going to hear my shock. You're probably going to hear my voice quake. It's tough to hear the stuff, you guys. It's tough to hear what may have happened to our babies. It's tough to hear that medical professionals aren't monitoring these things just for simple lack of knowledge. It's frustrating to hear nobody wants to make change. So just guard your heart. Listen to this in pieces if you want to. I did find it helpful, but I will tell you I needed a snack and a hug after it because it's tough stuff to listen to. But I wanted to give you the heads up. Take what you want with a grain of salt. This is just one professional's opinion, but I will say that he has done a tremendous amount of research and drops a lot of the references that he uses. So get a pen or pencil if you're anything like me because I messed up when I write, but um, get something to write with. Take notes if you want to. But he has a lot of factually based opinions. To me, that's huge. 
But anyway, okay, I'm going to bring on Dr. Collins and uh, he'll give you some background on his expertise and, and how we got to having this conversation. Hello. Good morning. Hi. How are you? I'm good. Nice to see you. Well, thanks for doing well, this on a Saturday morning. Oh, glad to do it. And really so nice to meet you. And where are you located? I'm in Atlanta. Okay. Are you in New I'm, Orleans? No, I'm in Baton Rouge. Okay. So well, well, this is um this is gonna be very helpful. Um, my audience is particularly um you know, the term lost moms very well. So new, newly in their loss, um, trying to get answers, trying to navigate life afterward. This is going to be episode like 78. So I've been doing this for about a year and a half. Wow. Um, yeah. I started it on my son's sixth birthday or six month birthday, excuse me. And, um, yeah, it was really just an outlet for myself because I found that conversations with lost moms was the only thing that was helping me. So I just started recording my conversations and I threw them on the internet and uh, here we are, you know, 50,000 downloads plus. So um, this is going to be heard by those who are seeking out answers um, and kind of wanting to know more, not only just for closure um, on what happened to their babies, but for subsequent pregnancies, because oh, yeah. we got to know what we're working with here. So I really appreciate you you um, giving your expertise on this. Uh, I want to start with your background, though. Can you kind of give us a little rundown on how you became such an expert in this subject? Well, I practiced solo OB for over 30 years. And I had an event uh, that was very unusual. Uh, the patient, uh, her first name was Debbie, went fishing in Lake Pontchartrain with her husband on a Sunday and called me on a Monday morning saying the baby wasn't moving. So I told her I would meet her at the office at eight o'clock and take a look. And I did. And I took a look and the baby had no heartbeat, but I really couldn't see anything specific at the time. That was 30 years ago where we had black and white ultrasound that had so much definition. And so when I delivered the baby, the, the, the appearance was extraordinary. I can uh, email you the picture. Mm -hmm. Um, the baby literally was totally wrapped in its umbilical cord. It had a true knot of the cord. And um, what puzzled me as a scientist was how could this baby be in this condition and not be detectable uh, because of the usual ways we do prenatal care. So I began to pursue it by looking at literature. And I went back to the 1600s literature and worked my way forward to see what people had written about it. And the person that was the most involved in writing about it was an OB out of England uh, named uh, Dr. Smiley, who mm -hmm. was from Lanark, Scotland. He was one of the original editors of the Encyclopedia Britannica. So if you uh, look at the first edition, Encyclopedia Britannica, he has several pages of lithographs of babies dissected for cord accidents. And he also has uh, an interesting case report of a baby that over a period of three days died of a court accident. So, you know, it makes you wonder. Uh, I went back to, uh, there's a museum in uh, London called the British Natural History Museum where they have hieroglyphs and Egyptian artifacts, et cetera. And I went back and looked at that, looking for any uh, hint as to how much of this is known and what the Egyptians used to do is they used to save the placentas in a jar. And then uh, when that person died, 
in order to to go to the afterworld, you have you had to be buried with your placenta. So Whoa. if you look at the hieroglyphs, you have five people marching in a line, and the last person has a staff. And if you look at it, on top of the staff is a placenta and umbilical cord. So, you know, ancient societies were familiar with it. And if you go uh, to Hawaii, there's a place where the royalty used to have babies called the birthing stones. And what they would do is they would take the placenta and bury it in the corner of their a hut for future uh, spiritual purposes. So there's two examples from two different places in the world of how people recognize there was a special nature of placenta, etc. cetera. Uh, and there's also a hieroglyphic of Cleopatra having a baby. But I couldn't find any examples of hieroglyphics, you know, depicting stillbirth or uh, cord abnormalities mm -hmm. i'm still looking uh That's you know I'm, I'm hoping one day to go to the cairo egyptian museum and see if i could see something i went to it after my son died we went to egypt and we saw all of it we got the tours and we got we saw the mummies we saw everything i wish i had known this though so i could have specifically asked if there's any portrayal of that i mean that is really fascinating because they portray everything they're all just yeah. stories yeah it, well, I, I talked to a couple of experts uh, who told me they were not aware of any specific hieroglyphics or records of babies being born in Egypt. So, you know, that's that's just the nature of the beast. And um, it's not even referenced in the Bible, even there's in biblical times. Don't even reference it for some reason. It's It's really interesting that not a lot of history documents it. Yeah, well, people from way back when didn't consider that structure important okay. um as it turns out it's very important because it's an organ it's mm -hmm. an organ it's not just a vessel so it's an organ of embryonic development the cord develops from the embryo to the placenta not the other way around mm. so i've lobbied with the with the pathologist to depict it as a different organ system in pathology books uh whereas it's still treated as a part of placenta so you don't see any type of pathology textbook on the umbilical cord per se, although there is a discussion of it by a pathologist named Noya, N-A-E-Y-E. -E. He was out of Pennsylvania. That's an interesting story. Uh, so the, the day that they give it its own separate categorization, I think uh, you'll see more research into it because there's very little research into the umbilical cord. Well, that's what's wild is we're talking about 4,000 years ago that they weren't considering it an organ and we're now still not really considering it an organ. And you and I have spoken about this before and it doesn't really get the attention that it really needs in prenatal care. No, it, it has to get attention because it's a vital part of the whole picture. What I'm going to do is I'm going to send you this picture. Okay. All right. Uh, okay. I think I got it. Let's see if it comes your way. Yes. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, so that's the baby delivered. I used to keep a Polaroid camera with me to take pictures of these type of events. Oh and if goodness. you look at the baby, you'll notice that it's got three cords around the neck. Mm -hmm. It's got a body loop, and it also has a true knot. The cord is 100 centimeters long, mm -hmm. and uh, it also is what we call a two-vessel cord. It had one vein and one artery. 
So this baby had multiple cord issues and uh, it passed at about 37 weeks. So that's what intrigued me as a scientist is how could a baby look like this and not present some clinical signs that there was a problem? Well, as it turns out, 20 years after doing all this research, there is clinical information that can tell you a baby's having difficulty. And there is evidence that you can see these type of problems uh, on ultrasound. And so uh, people continue to suggest that you can't see these things with ultrasound. Almost the next picture I'm going to send you is certainly uh, an example of that. And so when you see these things, you need to pull that baby out of the routine prenatal care method and start looking at them on a weekly basis. So you said so the, the cord was 100, and 100 centimeters. Is that standard yeah. or is that short? Is that long? No, what average that? cord length is 55 centimeters. So this was so double the, the length. Double the length. And, and you know, that's why day, it was able to wrap so much? Yeah. Oh, my God. You can wrap as many times as it is long. And uh, I was reading a paper yesterday where they delivered a baby, and I think it was Syria, where the cord was 150 centimeters long. Oh, my God. Uh, the longest reported is 300 centimeters. So, it, so you're it, telling me this is the ultrasound where you can actually see it wrapped around the neck three times? Yeah, that's that's another case. That's not my case. But how come um, we're not doing this now? I I, I don't understand how it's I, being I... it's being uh, diminished. Uh, oh. They don't want it. They don't want to do this. Uh, and I've been in several court cases where this came out. the 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 OB community does not want this documented on an ultrasound because it obligates them to manage it, and they don't know how to do it. Jesus. Uh, even though there are people that have published papers on how to do it. So that picture is from one of those papers. Yeah. yeah. So be able to be able to visualize the umbilical cord is absolute, uh, especially with color Doppler and to look at its aberrations is absolute. And it's been published over and over again, over 20 years, I have a room full of these papers. So that's what I do every week as I scrounge the literature like mining for gold, oh and goodness. I look for these papers uh, to illustrate that this idea that you can't see this or do anything about it is a falsehood. Well, I remember um, with Brody, my first pregnancy, I was just seeing an OB, um, I and I I saw I went in for a routine a routine um, appointment, and they were like, "You're measuring small. Let's jump on an ultrasound." And we jumped on an and he was slow that day. And I jumped on an ultrasound, and she was on me for like five seconds. She was like, "Harpy looks great," and I hopped off the table. He was dead three days later. So there must have been something going on that she just did not look for. Now in my second pregnancy. Um, I saw a maternal fetal medicine specialist and I noticed that their technology is wildly more advanced and they paid way more attention to the blood flow in and out of the cord. Is there a reason why maternal fetal medicine specialists have more high-tech machines while OBs just don't? Well, the machines are expensive. Oh, and so well, there to, you have, go. to have the, uh, the top-end ultrasound machine, you're looking at $100,000. And in an OB practice, you just can't generate the cash flow to be able to afford that type of machine. But in a maternal fetal medicine world, they can do that mm -hmm. uh, because they get paid a lot of money uh, to do that. Wow. So wow. I'm going to send you a picture to illustrate uh, the history of this for you. 
Do you have a platform somewhere online where you post your findings? I used to. Okay. Uh, I used to do it, but uh, I'm not very uh, good at managing a website, so I closed it down. Uh, okay. But what I did years ago was created a not-for-profit called Pregnancy Institute. It's still licensed, and that's basically how I represent myself. Okay. So uh, what I'm sending you is from a textbook. Okay. And just notice the picture. Uh-huh. And notice how they, what nomenclature they use. They're called coilings of the cord. And when you talk about coilings, if you go back in the literature, that word represents wraps. Oh, but there wow. Was a paper published where the guy used hypercoiling to describe what was classically torsion, which goes back to the 1600s to an anatomist called William Hunter. And for some reason, that name stuck in the literature and it misrepresents what that is. Uh, hypercoiling is the wrong terminology. Yeah. Because coiling implies a wrap around the neck not a twist in the cord. Torsion represents twists, which implies the mechanical force of torque. You know, in engineering, they have to know torque to make cables and drilling pipe and these kind of things. So they talk about the torque uh, resistance of cable. And if you over torque something, it buckles. And the engineering word is called a hockle. And so when when these babies uh, maneuver and apply twists to the cord like a self-winding watch, you're applying force and the cord is only able to absorb so much force, mm -hmm. and which case it fails just like a drilling pipe because it collapses on itself. So it can be explained and it can be visualized. And uh, I'll send you what a picture of that looks like if I didn't do that already. Okay. So, now, go ahead. In a in a pathology report after, if the baby dies of a coil or a wrap, um, and they didn't note that during birth, will it indicate on a on a pathology report, or will it only show like a cord compression? Well, it, it depends on the. Uh, on what the placental pathology is. In your case, I think it showed fetal vascular malformation, yeah. which is indicative of uh, interfered blood flow in the cord. Yeah. Well, they were, they, I'm still not sure if it was an actual compression or a clot. I, they won't, I, we, no, we can't No, it was tell. a compression. Okay. The clot would come afterwards. But what I'm showing you again, I've now shown you color ultrasound of loops around the neck now okay. I'm showing you a color ultrasound of torsion of the umbilical cord. Oh my, okay. So this this is a, an actual coil, like a telephone cord, right? Yeah. Okay. So when we terminology use this nowadays, a hypercoil is this. That's and what you're looking at on the ultrasound. Right. And, and then um, when they say nuchal cord, that's wrap around the neck, correct? Yes. Okay. Correct. Okay. So, now, you know, my what, example to you is to show you, you can see these things. Yes. Yes. I remember maternal fetal medicine ultrasound showed a marginal cord insertion and then the blood flow in and out, but my OB hadn't really discovered that yet. So I just, you know, obviously will always wish I saw a maternal fetal medicine specialist with my first child, um, but we don't always get to do that. 
Well, the, the, the problem right now is uh, there's a society called uh, the American Institute of Ultrasound and Medicine, and the, the main obstetrical society, ACOG, relies on them to create standards, which, which is the word they use, as to what should be reviewed in an ultrasound. Now, they've suggested to review the cord insertion into the placenta on the ultrasound, uh, but it's not an obligatory thing to do. So a lot of people just don't do it. Okay. But what's out there is an ongoing debate whether attachments like a marginal insertion create a problem. And I think what's missing in the studies is it's not just the marginal insertion, it's where it is. You have to do it in terms of three dimensions. So you got to know where it is and where it is relative to the whole uterus. Does that cause premature rupture of membranes, the marginal cord insertion? Um, no telling. I, I think if there's consistent compression of the insertion, that it can trigger a pattern of premature contractions. But usually premature labor is attributed to inflammatory uh, circumstances like a subchorionic infection. Uh, mm -hmm. That all comes from a Dr. Roberto Romero out of Michigan. And I think that's probably correct. Uh, you get a an invasion of bacteria, you know, in between the membranes, and that gets chemistry going, and that chemistry triggers the contractions. Yeah, yeah. My my point is, all these things are detectable; uh, they're not invisible, and so that's where the obstetrical community needs to review its policies because these things are detectable, but they're you got to use different tools to do it. Right. You can't just go into a room measure someone's belly with a tape measure, tell them they're fine, ask them if the baby's moving and have the mom say, yeah, and not explore the movement pattern and then kick them out and say, oh, you're fine. That's literally what happened to me. Literally. Ver yeah, like It's like you were there. Pretty good, huh? Oh my God. No, it literally is. And I kick yeah. myself so much. Every I go over that day so much because now that I know what I know, how was that okay? Like that just well, that's that's my whole thesis is that our prenatal care methodology is terribly flawed. We're not looking at enough details to evaluate pregnancies. You know the the old issues of hypertension and gestational diabetes. I mean, those things are two hundred years old, and we haven't changed the way we evaluate it. So uh, they have to rethink prenatal care in light of modern tools which is the ultrasound and the fetal monitor. But there's always a harangue over these things. And the harangue is, well, if you document these things and something goes wrong, you're going to get into trouble mm -hmm. because they're going to say, well, look, you knew about it. Why didn't you do X about it? And that's their fear. They're afraid of repercussions from having the information because no one's developed. What do you do with the information? Right. There, there are no protocols that handle these type of things. And we still have gestational hypertension. No one yep. saw. It. So, well, the, yeah, the hypertension. I was having my increased blood pressure, and now come to find out, it was most likely from small placenta, and no one re no one investigated it. It was oh, keep on your baby aspirin, and we're going to induce if this keeps getting higher. And it was like, well, how well, high is it going to go? Yeah. Well, the only thing they have is baby aspirin at this time. There really is no other solution. Yeah. And that's a whole nother discussion. But yeah. the last picture I sent you. Yes. is an example that even at 12 weeks, you can measure the cord length 
and look at its characteristics. Oh my gosh. Okay. I'm going to show another, if you don't want to look, hide your eyes. Yeah. That's, I did not know you could see it that early. Wow. Not only see it that early, but see it that well. That, so is this the length that will always be? The, the cord length was originally described by Leonardo da Vinci as being as long as the baby, what we call head rump length. Mm. So it's proportional. You know, the, in, in art and in Greek uh, art and, and math, uh, nature is proportional. It's called the golden section. Uh, and so everything is proportional to everything else. So think of the da Vinci circle with the man in the middle where his arms are outstretched. Yep. That's, yep. that's a study in proportionality. And so all these things are proportional. It's some fundamental of nature uh, that it is. So you could look at a picture like this, and if you use your, your pen, you can measure that cord length and match it up to the fetus, and you'll see that basically it's basically the same. So as the baby grows, the cord will grow. But at the, you're yes. saying as a certain time, the cord may grow double in size while the baby doesn't catch up and vice versa? Yes. Okay. Wow. When does that usually yeah. happen? Well, the cord is always growing starting at around 26 to 28 days. That's when it starts to develop. Wow. And so it, the, the vessels are part of the embryonic cardiovascular system, and they grow through what they call the stalk and integrate into the placenta, not the other way around. So there's very little research on this. And there's very little research on umbilical cord development. So there's a misconception in literature that the hypercoiling is how the cord develops. And that's absolutely wrong. Those are not what we call helixes. Those are actual 360 degree twists. So uh, another misconception that is used, they use the word spiral, but spiral is an artistic term that means an ever-changing diameter like a spiral galaxy. The cord is not spiraled, it's helical, which means it's a consistent diameter of turns. And even uh, going back to William Hunter, he basically said that you have an average of eight to six turns in a normal size cord of 55 centimeters, you can actually count this and measure this. And then if you put twists in there, and I figured this out with my own research, I untwisted over a thousand cords at delivery and found out that the average number of twists is three. So when you add three to eight, you get 11. And so even Hunter talked about having 11 turns in the cords. Well, that's normal development right there. You can actually count it, measure it, and know if the baby is developing torque. Oh but you got to look at it to figure it out. So you, 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 how did you do that during delivery? After delivery. As oh, the after. Baby, yeah. After. In other words, you cut the cord and then you untwist it till it looks like it's in its normal state. Okay. So, so we're talking all about this lack of attention to this what are what can we do as the mom at this point you know we i know we always say advocate for yourself advocate for yourself but how what would that even look like at this point like demanding they take a look at a certain like you have to know your stuff now in order yeah. to ask doctors specifically what to do well you have to ask them to look at these things yeah 
say, I want you to take a picture of the cord and I want you to take a picture of where the cord is attached to the placenta. And I want you to give me a copy. You have to demand it. Oh my word. Yeah. We got to get bossy. We got to get confident. Yeah. We got to, we got to stand up and do that. That's the word. You ever seen this girl on the commercial? Uh, her name's Judy. I don't uh, know. Wait, the commercial. Uh, what is it? It's It's a cleaner. Okay. <laughs> Some, my boss or something cleaner. <laughs> okay. It, the personality, the, the actress is deliberately being very bossy. <laughs> and it's really funny. So uh, That's what we have I, to do. And people are yeah, terrified to do that's that. That's what you have to do to get these people to do what they're supposed to do. Do you have people sending you pictures and being oh, like, yeah. what does this mean? All the time. Yeah. The last two weeks, I've had three moms call me about torsion deaths. And half the time, the OBs don't even know what it is when they see it. Oh, so Jesus. I'm going to send you a picture okay, and I'll explain it to you when you get it. Okay. Oh my. Oh my. Was this baby living? Yes. Oh my because God. It didn't exceed the torque uh, strain uh, strain of the cord. So it didn't collapse. That's why the baby's alive. Jesus. Okay. If you don't want to see this, don't look, but I'm going to show you. So what you're looking at are helixes and twists in the same cord. Oof. So and this can, another... this can be seen on ultrasound, correct? Yes. It can all you, can be seen on ultrasound. Can you tell how many times on ultrasound? Yeah, you can count it. Okay. But that's not the best way to do it. Okay. I'm going to send you another picture. And then I'm going to follow it up with another picture. Do we know how the baby even manages this? Well, the baby can manage it. Uh, you mean manage to get like, into it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Manage yeah. to get the, into it. The the baby is reflexive, just like you blink in your eyes with dust in your eye. Okay. And so when it gets stimulated, which is mainly an interruption of its blood flow for some reason, uh, it maneuvers. And so like a self-winding watch, the baby will literally spin in the womb. And if it spins in a certain three you know, X, Y, Z axis, it applies twist to the cord instead of getting wrapped. Yeah. You know, if it, if it rolls over, well, then it can wrap itself. So these twists are because the baby is maneuvering relative to the placenta so that it doesn't wrap. It just applies a 360 degree twist to the cord. Do you know if, you know, obviously we feel movement. Do you know if that particular movement is indicative of something like, could we be able to tell that this movement is different? Um, no, the only thing about okay. movement is you'd be able to tell the strength of the movement. Okay. All right. So the next two pictures I'm sending you uh, shows you a baby. And if you look at the picture of the baby, he's pale, he's floppy. It's actually a she, the yeah. baby has torsion, it has a cord around the neck. And then oh if you look at God. the right side of the baby, it goes down under his knee. Yeah. All right. So this mom came to the office for a visit and told me the baby wasn't moving that morning. So I brought her to labor and delivery for that reason. And you could see the baby's heartbeat was abnormal and delivered the baby. So the next picture is the baby uh, at 20. What? Uh, Jessica. Oh, that's her? Oh, yeah, my gosh. Jessica. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That's the baby. So, you know, what what I'm the example of the case is that there is a way to be aware that the babies might be getting into difficulty 
there's a lot of controversy about counting fetal kicks. To me, there's a better way to do it, and that is to be aware of your baby's behavior. I use the word behavior. So every night when you go to bed, when you lay down, your baby moves. Mm -hmm. It's a reflex, and uh, there are reasons for it. And so if you feel the baby is moving at night, when you go to bed about the same, good chances are your baby's fine. So, but if you go to lay down and the baby doesn't move or moves very poorly, well, then there's a problem. Yeah. So I use the word fetal behavior and to be aware of bedtime fetal behavior more so than kick counting. Interesting. Uh, because if you tell the mama to count kicks, she may be counting movements, not kicks. Right. Right. Uh, the guy who originated that observation uh, was out of Israel, and he meant kicks, punches, not just movement. And so people have misinterpreted that paper for years, uh, thinking that any kind of movement is countable, but it's not. That's not the way it works. So well, how if this woman had waited any longer, this baby would not have made it, obviously. So no. do you have a timeline? Uh, well, when movement slows or stops? Well, if if you go back to the original Dali, I mean, uh, uh, Smiley paper, uh, case reports, he wrote a book with case reports, that baby died over a three-day period and had two cords around the neck. So there is a controversy that I try to uh, address where they said the babies die immediately. No, they don't. They die over time. Uh, they could be trying to compensate, which they can do, over a period of days, like a marathon runner, and then they finally collapse. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So uh, these babies don't die instantly. There is time to find them and to evaluate them and to possibly deliver them if you have to. Okay. So, so the next picture I sent you is a baby that delivered in the emergency room. The mother had no prenatal care. And uh, it's a really good example of what a torsion looks like. Yes, yes. That is a very, yeah. that's a very long cord. So if you count all the turns, you get like 24, 25 turns. And then if you untwist that cord, you get 15 twists. Okay. And the rest are the inherent helixes. So the, the value of that picture is to be able to explain what torsion is and how it works. So uh, it's not an uncommon problem. It just doesn't always cause death of the baby. Right, right. But it's there, you know. So if you were to do a study and you want to do a study on torsion and how it impacts pregnancy, there's no database in the world that has that information. And uh, So you said something interesting on our phone call about needing to know the length of the cord um, right. and how much they have left. So if the cord is measuring small and they have, they've been wrapped in it, they have no space left. No slack. No slack. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. So that, I found that very interesting. Yeah. And well, that's never taken into account. So right. if you look in a database, nobody has a picture of the cord and placenta in their database, and they don't untwist the cords and count the twists or put in the length. So there's no database in the world that can look at this question because they don't have the details to answer the question. So uh, a lot of the opinion uh, is based on guesswork. It's not based on details. But I detailed that over a thousand deliveries to understand it. And now I understand what it is. And so they continue 
with the verbiage of hypercoiling, which is incorrect, it gives you the wrong idea about it. Uh, it's torque, it's torsion, very common in horses. And, uh, you know, it, it has to do with fetal reflexes and how the baby reacts in the womb. And that, that, that's why some babies can be delivered alive with the cord around their neck and some aren't is because well, yeah. of the length and yeah. the placement. It's, you said the placement in the placenta, right? Yeah. Well, how much do you have left? How much right. length do you have left? Yeah. Right. Um, let me see if I can send you a poster that shows that. Okay. Yeah. None of that is taken into account, unfortunately. And it has a lot to do with how you do this. So if you're telling your doctor to take a look and they can see that the the cord is attached to the placenta at the top and it's also wrapped around the baby twice, you could see how much length you actually slack you have left. And then if it means an early delivery to get them out before they get too big, then that's what you would have the precaution you would have to take. Well, what you want to do is evaluate the baby based on his heart rate right. and his behavior before you decide to deliver a baby early. I mean, that, right. that's what you got to do. Yeah, I'm looking for a particular photo for you. Haven't found it yet. I'll send you this one. This is another picture. Uh, this was published quite a while ago, uh, showing four cords around the neck with ultrasound. I hear four is uh, very rare. Is that true? Yeah. But if you saw this baby on ultrasound, you would definitely start watching this baby on a very frequent basis. Okay. And, uh, you know, okay. like I said, the, you can only have so many wraps before you run out of length. Yeah, you're right. Wow. Now, you also have theories about knots being formed from it being wrapped. Is that right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's very easy to prove um, the the baby starts off with what they call a hitch instead of a wrap. Uh, as the baby maneuvers, the cord buckles on itself. And that buckle goes over the head and forms a hitch, just like hitching a horse to a post. Okay. And those loops come down the body over time because of the way the baby behaves. And uh, eventually when they're delivered, they come off the feet as a knot. Interesting. What what is, is that a true knot? Is that what that is? Yeah. Okay. And what about all this Wharton's jelly talk about how some women have more or less and that's why some babies live and don't? Like, what is all that? Well, that's just variable. Uh, there okay. isn't really a lot of research on, on Wharton's jelly. Uh, but the little bit that I could find, uh, it's equivalent to what starts to build bone, what they call the bone matrix. Okay. And uh, nobody knows what controls it, what genes develop it, and whether you can affect its thickness or, or thinness. That's unknown. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, um, if you're okay with that, put this on this video on YouTube, if that's okay, so I could show everyone the photos. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Does early delivery sometimes save these babies? Do we know? Well, yeah, that was the Jessica baby. Okay. Yeah. She was early. Um, Even if though, let's say 
Baby's heart rate's fine. We could see that it's wrapped several times, though. Would an early 36, 37, just for precaution, be acceptable? No, you wouldn't do it as a precaution. What you would do is you'd put the baby on labor and delivery and put, put the mom on constant monitoring. And then if you saw alterations of the heart rate, what we call decelerations, then you could make the decision to deliver the baby. But I wouldn't deliver the baby just because of the wraps. Uh, the, would the you wraps are, opt for C-section in this event? Not necessarily. Okay. What you could okay. do is you could get them going uh, as far as a vaginal delivery goes. And as long as they can, they can deliver vaginally if they don't run into some type of cord obstruction. Okay. So yeah, you can do that. I also want to ask you, I mean, I don't, it's, it's all the same subject, but I hear a lot about clots in the umbilical cord um, and that you can't tell and it, it, they like wash away. And so a lot of people don't actually know if there was a clot or not. Um, I have a clotting disorder that I found out about after Brody died. And a lot of us now know that we have this. How common are these clots in the cord? And is it the same situation as monitoring behaviors that would help? Or is that instant? Uh, what is that? No, there's no way to monitor for a clot. Okay. Uh, all you would be able to do is notice if the baby's behavior changed. Okay. Um, but they're not that common. Uh, okay. So I, I, it's it's not on the top of my list of cord issues. Interesting. So I finally found the, the, the diagram to explain to you about placental position and cord. Okay. Okay. So if you look at the top two images. Okay. Um, there the placentas are anterior. So the, this lady had uh, a loss due to a double nuchal cord, but she had other babies with cords around the neck. But when you went back and looked at the ultrasounds, the only baby that had the fundal placenta was the third baby. And so uh, what is depicted in the diagram is that the cord is under tension because of the double nuchal cord. Yep. And that's what caused it to die. Oh, God. The other okay. babies uh, don't have that relationship. Their placentas are either anterior or the one that's posterior. So they have plenty of slack to deliver with. Okay. So in the obstetrical planning, we don't plan delivery. You know, we should be uh, putting in the notes you know, this baby has a fundal placenta with a marginal insertion, you know, make note of this if the baby isn't descending or the labor isn't going smoothly. And so you would know that already. The fact that we don't have that type of information in a, a obstetrical note means you're basically laboring blind. So, it, you know, you're going to have a sudden event and you're not going to know what it is. Yeah. You're going to sit there trying to figure out what it is but you're not going to be able to because you can't figure it out just because the baby's heartbeat slowed down. Uh, if you had this information in your head with a particular patient, you would be able to figure it out and you would be able to act on it because of what you already know. Right. So it's a hole in our prenatal information assessment is my point. We have to know these details and they need to be in the OB record and they need to be in the delivery record or if you go back to do studies, you're never going to figure it out because you don't have the information to figure it out with. Right. Why is there such hesitation to further advance or learn or educate on this subject? It's just a difficult subject. Yeah. It's uh, 
Um, obstetrics is not a well-known innovative specialty. That's so wild. Uh, Why? Because they've had bad experiences in the past with uh, people that have tried to do things and they turned out badly. So they're very sensitive to it. The worst was the, the cerebral, cerebral palsy lawsuits that came out of the 80s because of fetal monitoring. And people used the fetal monitoring to say the babies were getting brain damaged and nothing was done about it. So that group of academicians, they're in their 80s now, and they were very sensitized to that uh, error because of the massive number of lawsuits that were taking place, blaming OB doctors for cerebral palsy. But if they, as they found out over time, the injuries were before labor. Wait, so, so th were they saying that the ultrasound technology was hurting the babies? No. Okay, well, what were they, what the were they saying? The fetal monitoring, okay. the fetal heart rate monitoring was not being properly interpreted. Oh, got it, got it. Okay, okay. Okay, but you're saying cerebral palsy was coming from another source. Yeah. Interesting. So so you're saying if they come out and they, they're like, okay, we need to start monitoring these cords better. We're now diagnosing what we're seeing. We're doing, we're taking precautions and we're saving these babies that the ones that were not saved could come out and sue. No, they won't. They won't be able to do that. Okay. Because the quote, quote, standard of care is that you don't have to look for it. Interesting. You're right. The standard of care. Yeah. So that's where the argument, the legal argument is going to go to standard of care. Yeah. And uh, I had a, a very interesting experience. There was a maternal fetal doctor out in Colorado that diagnosed and recorded five cords around the neck of a baby and did not follow up on that. And the baby died Jesus. and he defended himself with other maternal fetal medicine testimony that basically said he did not have to follow it up, that that doesn't cause a problem. So <sighs> he won his defensive case. So that's what, what's going to be out there. I run into it all the time. I have a paper sitting next to my chair that I pulled yesterday uh, of a group uh, out of Texas that basically says the same thing, that if you see entanglements or not, you don't have to do anything about it because it doesn't cause a problem. And they're not even telling the mother. No, a lot of these uh, institutions do not tell the mother and, and the, the technicians are told not to tell the mother. Oh, my God. So, yeah, that's all uh, unnecessary. But that is the current you know trend of, of what to do about this there uh th you know there's a, there are a lot of people that publish papers to suggest that you don't have to address this problem what they're missing is it's not you're not looking for the baby that's going to survive you're looking for the one out of a hundred entangled babies that's not going to survive that's the one you're looking for so don't sit there and say, oh, well, it doesn't cause a problem. Don't worry about it. No, keep looking to yeah. find the baby that's not managing it properly and is starting to deteriorate. That's totally doable, totally possible. That's based on those two pictures I sent you with the multiple wraps. And, um, you know, th that's just not the way to approach it. Yeah. So I feel like a lot of times the doctors are looking for everything to be fine instead of looking for something that's going wrong. Right. Wow. Uh, how do you know, we mostly, change you know, out of that? Out of 1,000 deliveries, uh, most is going to go fine. 
the trick to being a good OB is finding the one out of a thousand that's not going fine. Jesus. You know, that really tests your abilities to manage OB patients uh, well. You got to go find the baby in trouble. That's your job. And you're going to go through a lot of moms that aren't having any problems. That doesn't mean somebody else isn't having a problem. But, you know, sooner or later, you're going to get burned, you know, maybe in three years, and you're going to hit that baby that was having a problem that you weren't paying attention to. Yeah. You know, I, th I think it has to happen, though. Like if you the only way they change is to experience a death on their watch. But the ones that infuriate me are the ones that don't change, even if they had a baby die on their watch. Well, you know, you have uh, institutions that promote their policies and, you know, an individual is not going to likely buck up against an organization that's saying you have to do this. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's just not something that you see on, on a regular basis. Those, those type of individuals are very far and few between. So... Um, do you have any that come to you to 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 learn or research or rally to try to get some change going on? No, no, no. I wonder why. Because it's not a popular topic. Um, stillbirth is not a popular topic. So, uh, you know, I've had encounters with some of these people where they don't they feel like it's a career killer if you uh, promote stillbirth research and do things along those lines. What? So, yeah. So what you see is you see people entering this topic and they'll write a paper willy nilly. They don't have the information. And so they come to a conclusion that's completely aberrant because they never comprehended the issue. It took me 20 years to comprehend this issue right. and begin to understand what was going on with these babies. It's not something you can just hand over to a resident and say, go write a paper on true knots and think you're going to get it right. Like this group did, you know, out of Israel, where they couldn't even describe how the knot was formed. So what I do is I write an email to these authors and say, you know, I enjoyed your your paper, very interesting, but this is how a true knot is formed, not the way you described it. And then they make uh, conclusions as if to say they're the authority on the idea after writing one paper. They're not. They don't get it right at all, and they don't have the fundamental information to get it right. So are you seeing other countries paying more attention now and making some change happen? Are we the only ones that aren't? No, uh, there okay. are other countries looking at this and yeah. they have the same clash of ideas, the people that believe it's an issue and the people that don't think it's an issue. So that it's going on pretty universally. Uh, it's uh, it, it starts with education and most of these, places don't have conferences that address the topic. So, I mean, you can go across the country to OB meetings and you'll never see a lecture on umbilical pathology. Unbelievable. I don't, it's like the, it's the lifeline. I don't understand it. So it's, it's <sighs> not a popular topic. They don't want to talk about it and they don't want to be obligated to evaluate it because they're afraid of getting it wrong because nobody knows how to get it right. Jesus. Okay. So if, I go in and I say, this is what I want you to look at. What is the checklist? And then 
basically we're saying that they may not even know what that means or what to do if they find certain things. So then we can send it to somebody like yourself to say, can you take a look at this? So what is the checklist that we want them to look for? Well, what they have to do is they have to get an image of the cord uh, relative to what it looks like. And they have to get an image of where it attaches to the placenta to see if it's marginal or what they call villaminous. Those are fundamentals that you should know by 20 weeks. Okay. Uh, and everybody should be looking at that. But it's not obligatory, so nobody does. Yeah, so anatomy scan, we found the marginal cord insertion. But honestly, Dr. Collins, it was like, oh, eh, there's not enough research to think to say that this is a big deal. Uh, usually we see it in twins. So it may be growth restriction. That's all you're well, going to see. And I'm like, actually, there is enough research to uh, say it's an issue. So that that statement is incorrect. As a matter of <laughs> fact, it's a very common issue with IVF patients that are infertility patients. There, that method causes a lot of marginal insertions and nothing's worse than going through an IVF procedure for $10,000 and having your baby die at seven weeks because of compression of the marginal insertion. So, oh my God, that can happen at seven weeks? Happens all, no, it's at 37 weeks. Oh, 30, sorry, 37 weeks. Yeah. Does IUI cause that as well or just IVF? IVF is all on, oh, that's published. These things are published. This is and so, wild. Yes, there is, there is uh, published information about marginal insertions causing poor outcomes. That exists. My God. I they, I got looked in my face like this is not a big deal. And then my baby came at 32 weeks and they won't talk to me. Well, why won't they talk to you? They don't do follow-ups, quote unquote. They won't talk to me about what happened. They won't talk to me about what do I do next pregnancy. Like they won't talk to me. Well, so I had to switch no offices. Yeah, well, well, there's no reason not to talk to the patient. Thank I mean, you. I talk, I talk to people every week that I don't even know and have never met that are calling me from across the country about what you just said. They don't know what happened to the babies. Nobody's telling them anything. And I, I think that's tragic that this is going on. Those people should be brought back to the office and should have an explanation of what possibly happened. I don't understand the behavior, frankly. It's horrible. They told me to get in line because I'm not pregnant anymore. I have to start over and they will not do a follow-up. And I have to wait for a preconception appointment. And I think that I got so upset that you uh, something happened while you were I was in your care. Why won't you talk to me about it? So I well, fired them and I have to go somewhere else now because I thought yeah, that that's all right. Well, you know, their are guidelines that say they should be talking to you. It's unbelievable. So, they're not doing their job is what it boils down to. And that's happening a lot because I think people oh, yeah. don't want to be held accountable for something going wrong when they yeah, missed that, it. That's what it's about. That's what it's about. Now, I sent you another picture. Okay. Uh, and basically, there are eight different types of cord morphologies. Whoa. You know, so I want you to look at that picture Uh huh. because not every cord is the same. They developed in different ways. And they even look differently in other animal groups, like primates and horses and cows and uh, goats. So you have two vessels, three vessels, four vessels, and five vessels. Yes, all those are possible. Wow. Now, what are the the the, the risk factors for each one of these? Like, if you have five vessels, oh, nobody knows. Jeez. Oh, nobody knows. I hate it. What here. I'm showing you is uh, unusual. Nobody knows this breakdown, and. So you, what you'll hear 
is say, oh, well, babies are born all the time with cords around the neck and they do fine. Yeah, well, the reason that that's an error is because they're not all the same. So you have cords that are thick, you have cords that are thin, you have cords that have different uh, venous artery relationships. So you can't say they're the same. They're not the same. Yeah. The ones that are dying clearly have something wrong with it that caused the death. Not that it's benign. It's not benign when it's in the right combination of factors. And in order to figure out this, you have to know all the parts. You have to know what the cord looks like, what the insertion is, where the placenta is. And those are all essential elements, details that does not exist in any database. So you can't get to the right conclusion, which is out there uh, that says, oh, baby's cords are on the neck are not a problem. You don't have to do anything about it. Yeah, you do. You got to pay attention to it. And you better be looking at that baby so that if you see a cord around the neck, two weeks later, it doesn't have two cords around the neck. So these things can come and go and multiply and or have a cord around the waist or a cord around the ankle. You got to go looking for these things if you're going to get it right. Chances are, if you don't do that, then you're going to miss the one of the thousand babies that's in trouble. You're going to yeah. miss it. So that's what's out there. But uh, every time I see a paper like that, I respond to it and write an email <laughs> and send this information to the author to say, did you take this into account? Did you take this into account? If you didn't, then you don't have the right answer. And uh, I had a, pa a paper not too long ago that did something similar. And I wrote the lead author and the lead author wrote me back and she said, very interesting. I agree with you. We don't have that information. I'm going to try to go back in my database and try to get it. Well, you're not going to get it because it's not there to begin with. You got to start from scratch and build it into your database. But I doubt that anybody to this day has anything like that. Oh, my gosh. Well, it, it, in medical school, is any of this covered in detail at all? No, not at all. Uh... I had to go digging through many textbooks and many papers. You know, I have over 2,000 papers on this topic uh, to get to the answers I'm giving you. Is there anyone else out there doing your work? Not on a regular basis like I am. Every now and then something will pop up. Uh, but these are not someone who's dedicated to the topic. Right. Uh, th they just decided they were going to write a paper on this issue uh, because of the, the winds, you know, of trends. So right now this is not a popular topic. Do you get any pushback or backlash or anything of the sort from current medical prof professionals when you try to speak on the topic? Not directly, but indirectly. Okay. You know, uh, I, I've yet to have anybody willing to converse with me directly about it. So I don't know why they don't. Yeah. That's not the academic way. The academic way is to have the conversation. Yeah. Do you think there's hope? Do you think that we'll ever see a turn in this? Or is yeah. this always going to be in the hands of the mother? No, it'll turn because the technology is getting better all the time. So, you know, ultrasonography is becoming extremely detailed. And so as that comes about, and as the pathologists who get all this, the pathologists don't have a problem with what I'm telling you. Right. They get all this. Right. They can look at the placentas and tell what's going on. And um, so it's just the OBs. But as the ultrasound becomes more refined, 
and we get better at censoring the baby, probably at home, which I've done, then you'll start seeing these things and they'll have to deal with it. So I'm going to show you how, how far back I go with this stuff. Well, in your career then, on that note, have you seen an increase in deaths? Do you think the number's increasing or are people just becoming more outspoken about it? No, I don't think it's increasing. Okay. Um, as a matter of fact, in other parts of the world, India and Eastern Europe, I think they're catching on to it. So I want to send you this to show yeah. you. This is the first paper that I published with the American College of UN. ACOG, jeez. So, yeah, that was 1991, by the way. They have actually started to like silence a lot of us, which is really interesting. Like not letting us that? comment, taking down uh, comments on their posts. Uh, I believe there's been 4,000 or so letters written from stillbirth mothers saying we need to change our prenatal care, all ignored. Um, they're not willing to listen. And I find that very interesting. And I think it just yeah, it all goes along to what you're saying. Yeah. Well, I have an OBGYN mother that lost a baby to this, and we helped her with her subsequent two pregnancies where the baby, the first baby was lost to a double nucleocord, and the second and third baby both had double nucleocords. Oh, my God. And we were monitoring her at home, and we caught both babies getting into difficulty and got them delivered. Her name's Dr. Finkelstein. She's out of New Mexico. And when ACOG wrote its last stillbirth bulletin, I showed it to her and asked her to write a letter to the author, which she did. And, you know, she berated the author uh, as saying, you're not solving the problem. You need to change your attitude about it. So we've approached them in many different ways with patients, doctor patients, science mm -hmm. examples mm -hmm. to say, you know, you, you got to stop ignoring this because it's becoming too apparent through published literature that these things are doable and you're not addressing it. They're not, they're ignoring it. I don't understand but it. I, I think as the ultrasound imaging becomes better, they're not going to be able to ignore it anymore. I, I, I hope it does get better and I hope it's affordable by these doctor's offices. I mean, I have seen some really rough looking ultrasound images where I'm like, what is happening in there? You can't see anything. But then you go over to, you know, uh, reproductive specialists, which are like NASA cameras. And then you've got maternal fetal cameras, which are monitoring the blood flow. I mean, it's it's wild how different it all is. And well, there's a company out of Vancouver, Canada called Clarius, which has a two thousand dollar handheld ultrasound where you can send the images to your iPhone. And those images are very clear and very good. Whoa. So. I believe in the future, mothers are going to be scanning themselves with $1,000 handheld ultrasound uh, units, and they'll be monitoring themselves at home once it becomes available to the public. Uh, that is possible today, but you need a permission from your OB to let you do it, and a lot of them don't want to do it. No. So I got moms calling me up about it, but I tell them I can't help them unless a doctor gives them a script to do it, and the doctors refuse. So, oh my gosh. Um, you know, all that's going to shift for a, lot, a variety of reasons. Yeah. But that's where it is today. Well, I have a feeling after this airs, you're going to get a lot of mothers reaching out, if that's okay. Yeah. I like talking to the moms. Yeah. Uh, the more moms I educate, the sooner this is going to get better. Yeah. 
Uh, how, what's the best way to reach you in that situation? Email. Email. Okay. So I'll provide your email if that's yeah, okay. Okay. You can do that. Yeah. Um, I want to, I want to talk to him because I want to hear the stories mm -hmm. because it helps me to verify what I've come up with after 20 years of research. Yeah. So what we know, we're the first ones to publish these babies tend to die at night uh, between two and four in the morning. Oh my there God. are reasons for that. And uh, I've yet to hear a story that contradicts that. And uh, when I listen to the symptoms, you know, it verifies the clinical signs that are out there. Babies that are getting into trouble have lots of hiccups several times a day. Oh my God, mine did. Mine, I was told that was proper lung development. He had hiccups no. all day. No, that's fiction. No, hiccups is a reflex. Oh and my it's God. a reflex that relates to the baby's blood flow being disrupted in the cord. And uh, you get a pressure wave if you compress the cord and it goes up to what it's called the ductus venosus, which is a vessel that connects uh, the venous return to the heart and the baby. And that's wired to the baby and it causes hiccups, which if you think about it, the baby's trying to hop off the compression. Oh my God. So it's, it's a reflex of the baby to protect its blood flow. So hiccups that are repeating themselves on a daily basis Mm -hmm. is a clinical warning sign. And I've presented that for the last 20 years. I, I presented that at a European meeting and had a man stand up in the audience screaming at me, told me I was a liar. <laughs> well, they, well, because I immediately, I feel guilt. I feel blame. I feel like I should have known that. And I feel like that's well, people's reactions you, when they get mad. How would you know it if it's not written anywhere? So, I, I yeah. was literally told it was a good sign, both pregnancies, yeah, of that's proper lung there. development. Okay. Yeah, that, no, it has nothing to do with lung development. And um, babies, I hear about, you know, and my my baby got quiet from here and there and then would start moving again. And I was told that was yeah. normal because they sleep and sometimes they, you know, you can't feel them. But is there a chance that they are compressing over a very long period of time and they'll yeah. decompress it and then compress it and go back and yeah. forth? Okay. It's called intermittent core compression. Yes, Jesus indeed. Christ. Jesus Christ. I mean, yeah. I don't know how many signs I could have had and my OB literally did not catch them. And it's infuriating. And I'm sorry that I'm upset. It's just so well, terrible. Only, all I can say to you is that it's not taught anywhere. So, so you're OB saying they is, just don't know. They don't know. Jesus. No. You That's can't scary. read it anywhere and you can't hear it anywhere. It's not at any OB meeting. Yeah. There's no lecturer on umbilical cord pathology at an OB meeting. It just so, makes me sad. There's so many mothers whose lives are just completely shattered and so many babies that are dead. It's just not a pregnancy loss. It's what they kind of treat it like. It's a death. The the position of ACOG is the cords don't cause death. And they actually, they actually put that in writing. The, there's really? an ACOG bulletin where it says, if your baby's born with a cord issue, look for another cause of death. So they don't accept cord malfunction as a cause of death even though there's hundreds of papers in animal models even rats that show that if you have intermittent compression of the cord the fetus collapses after about 45 minutes so the evidence is out there in in animal models but then you get the person that says well that's not a human you can't equate the two and i'm like people equate the two all the time yeah all the time research and and other things so you know it's just wow. an excuse not to address the problem. So uh, yeah, you know, my, my nature is to uh, address the problem. I'm, you know, I like to problem solve. So you do, and I appreciate it. Very challenging as an issue. And the more I dug into it, 
the more I began to understand why it still exists, because nobody is studying it properly, even back to William Hunter. So since the 1600s, all they did was make observations, but nobody really did an evaluation because the tools didn't exist. But yeah. today you have ultrasound and fetal monitoring, which are tools where you can look at these babies that are getting into trouble and you can get them out of trouble if you're paying attention. And that's all it takes is paying attention to the baby that's telling you I'm in trouble. And there are ways to know which babies those are. I mean, you're just, you're doing work that is so appreciated. And I think you're going to, you're helping so many because it just feels like nobody else wants to help. So, and I know it's not easy. So I'm so thankful that you are doing this and educating us because I don't know if in my lifetime I'll ever see anything change, but I do know I have the tools as much as I possibly can to try to get my babies here alive. Yeah. Well, if you're a lost mom, your chances of another loss is five times. That comes out of the National Institute of Health, and Dr. Reddy did that. There's some other studies, one's out of Michigan that says it's 10 times. I think that's a little high, but it depends on what caused the baby to die. Right, right. And and then, you know, that depends on what your chances are of another problem. But the thing right. is, is that the bottom line is a mom that lost a baby needs a lot more attention and investigation on her subsequent pregnancy because she's so terrified. And so you got to give it to her. You got to give her the attention. You got to do multiple ultrasounds, multiple testings, so that she can go through a day-to-day -day life without being terrified something's going to happen again. Thank you for saying that. There's a lot of doctors that will not give that to mothers who have lost. And I try to tell these moms, you got to get another doctor. A compassionate, yeah. good doctor will help you through the next pregnancy. Yeah, I don't understand it. My nature is to do that, but I don't understand the resistance why is they're not wanting to do it? So you might hear things like, well, the insurance isn't going to pay for it. Well, when you have your baby, go get a lawyer and sue the insurance company. That's what you do. I like yeah. it. Yeah. I like it. Oh, well, we don't know how to do that with ultrasound. We'll go get somebody who does. Yeah. Because if you don't know how to look at the umbilical cord, how can you be maternal fetal medicine when you're supposed to look at blood flow in the cord to look for IUGR babies? Then you're not trained properly right. and you shouldn't be in maternal fetal medicine. I mean, this is the kind of stuff I hear all the time from these moms. Yeah, it's pretty you know, wild. We don't, do that. we don't know how to do that. That doesn't matter. And I'm like, man, oh man, oh man, you must not be reading your own literature. It's, it's like they don't. There. Yeah, no, they don't. They don't stay up to date or anything. They don't. It's yeah. and if they see something that's kind of wrong, quote unquote, or abnormal, I feel like they should then go look it up. Like, how do I treat this? You know, it just doesn't feel like that. There's so much, well, so much ego truth, in this arena. There's nothing to look up. It doesn't. It's yeah, not yeah, yeah, you're right. You know, the you're last right. paper that I published uh, talked about why you need to do this with ultrasound. So uh, I don't know that anybody took it seriously. But, you know, 10 years from now, there's going to be some resident looking up literature. He's going to come across the paper and say, oh, well, look what this guy was saying 10 amazing. years ago. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, I'll I hope you don't ever stop. <laughs> no, no, no. I'll continue to do this because it's such an incredible issue. Uh, it's a solvable problem. Yeah. Uh, and so I don't see any reason why it can't be uh, intertwined into prenatal care. You can solve this problem. Uh, we're the first ones to report a true knot on ultrasound. We did it first. Yeah. And when I did it, I had professors up north saying that wasn't what was on the picture. Uh, one in particular got all over me in an editorial 
saying, I didn't know what I was doing and I didn't see that and that didn't happen. Well, that baby's 32 years old now. <sighs> and so I, I gave the editorial to his mom, Evan Huff, and gave the mom his number, you know, at the university. And she called him up and cursed him out. But <laughs> I was there. I saw him do it. My baby's alive today because he was watching this. Mm -hmm. And uh, one night we saw D cells and I delivered Evan. So um, what it's going to have to take all of us getting roll out. But she chewed him up and down for his yeah. comments. He didn't know what he was talking about. Good. Mainly because he didn't know how to do it. Mm -hmm. And so he was commenting on his own incapacity. Ego. Yeah. And the title of his article was don't look for loops because you'll hang yourself. Oh, now, my God. How in the world did he get away with a title like that in a major obstetrical journal? I mean, the editors should have trashed his title before he even got started. But I later found out that the editor that was in charge of that issue was his colleague. Oh, my so God. That's how, he, that's how he got away with it. But let me tell Everything you Everything is so political, even this. My oh, goodness. Oh, yeah, this is a very political topic. Uh, I hate it here. Oh, my God. Yeah. Okay. Well, I still go to meetings and try to initiate conversation about it. But, it, you know, it's not welcomed. So it, I'm it, thankful you haven't backed down. I mean, this is know. life changing I have no, for I have a lot no of us. To back down. These people don't impress me. <laughs> you know, I I they're not you. doing they're not doing their job as academicians, and they know it. You must they get so frustrated. Yeah, yeah, it's frustrating. I'm sure yeah. I witness. Well, I know we are time. I don't want to take up your whole Saturday morning, but I oh, would love okay. to do um, if you're willing. I think we're going to have a ton of questions from this episode. I'd love to bring you back on and answer some of them. Would that be okay? Sure. Okay. Sure. okay. Is there anything uh, we didn't touch on that you want to leave with here? Well, I just want to tell the moms, insist on the ultrasounds, insist on them looking at the cord and its attachment to the placenta, and insist on getting a copy of the photos. Because if the technicians are being told not to document it or it's not being put in their prenatal record, they have a record of it. Okay. You know, okay. so that, that's important for them to protect themselves in the future. If something goes wrong, they can say, well, they knew about it, but they didn't do anything about it. And it's going to take that type of pressure to wake these people up. Absolutely. They're not, they're not awake yet. Uh, right now, they're in defense position where they're trying to. Uh, Ne neglect and deny this stuff because they don't want to deal with it. Oh my gosh. So that's well, my this message. Has been, this has been so helpful. I appreciate your time so much. Yeah, um, well, and I want to keep this conversation going. And getting to see who you are. And, <laughs> Thank you. You know, it, it will get better. It is doable. If they can solve COVID and AIDS and polio, they can solve this. Yeah, you're right. Well, I appreciate it again. The conversation is open. Um, I will put your contact information in the description so people can reach out. And yeah. I will do a question and answer uh, coming up in the near future here to try to get some some answers for some mamas that were listening. But again, I I you, I, I hope you know how much I appreciate this. It's it's oh, very rare to have anybody actually, take Actually, I appreciate you inviting me on your podcast uh, because I, I don't have a lot of options to get these messages out. I had a website for a while, but it just wasn't worth it. So this oh, is I'm nice here. To... I'm here to amplify your voice as much as I can. So well, this um, is nice of you to do, and I thank you. Well, thank you so much. Well, enjoy the rest of your Saturday, and we okay. will be in touch soon. Okay. Okay. Look thank you, to Dr. You. Collins, so much. All right. Bye. That's all for this episode of the At a Total Loss podcast. If you'd like to help other lost moms benefit from our stories, please share, rate, and comment wherever you are listening. 
Thank you for being the strong mama that you are. And remember, when things have you at a total loss, we're here to help you find the light in the darkness. Take care, Lost Moms.